please stand for the reading of God's word. Once again, I'm going to be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Hear now, O Israel, the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. You saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor. But all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully. For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, When he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. This is the word of the Lord. great to be here again. This is a fun place. I have uh, so enjoyed the different times I've come, and uh, so it's great to be back. Uh, And it's wonderful to be a part of this series on uh, the authority of God's Word. Um, Before we dive into this uh, section from from Deuteronomy chapter 4, I just want to follow up on something. I think it was the last time I was here, one of the recent times I was here, I talked about a book called Winsome Persuasion that I had worked on. We're about having conversations, difficult conversations in public square. I think I mentioned that I have volunteered uh, with a, it's not a Christian group, it just is a group that tries to depolarize political conversations in America. Not that we might be polarized, but you could imagine a world in which we were. Um, So I've been doing this, had all kinds of interesting conversations with people. I did one of these at Biola. I did one in, uh, in South Central L.A., did one at an Orthodox Jewish uh, synagogue up in Northridge, did one at USC. Uh, I'm going to be doing one in Costa Mesa two weeks from now. And we work really hard to get an equal number of sort of right-leaning or conservative people or in left-leaning or progressive people uh, at these. And right now we have 10 people who are more on the progressive blue side and six people who are on the conservative red side, that means I need four people (laughs) 
who are just leaning on that other side. Now, you may be here and going, well, I'm kind of blue leading, but I really want to do a thing like this. You know what? We will be doing other ones. So I wouldn't mind hearing from you too, actually. But two weeks from now on a Saturday, we will be doing this thing here in Costa Mesa. And if you're interested in that, just talk to me afterwards, and I'll get you that info. Um, but it's really nice. For, you know, people love to talk about, yeah, yeah, this thing about let's work on our, our uh, polarization. You know, the thing that's hard is actually doing it. So if you'd like to actually try and do that, uh, join me two weeks from now. So anyhow, that's just a little uh, a, a recruiting plug, but a good action point for uh, this, uh, in some ways, the things that we're talking about this morning as well. Uh, the passage that you read, it comes from, that was read, uh, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Uh, this is as Moses is, is uh, leading the people into the promised land that he won't be going into himself but he has this long conversation with uh, the people of Israel. That basically, the entire book of Deuteronomy, it, well, conversation, it's sort of one way, so long monologue about uh, the importance of uh, following and honoring God's word. I know it sounds weird, but uh, in a sense, I was reading this passage from Moses, and it reminded me of Mark Twain. Now, if you know anything about Mark Twain, he's not exactly the hotbed of Christian faith. Um, and you may wonder what it has to do, but a story is told of a time when he uh, he met a businessman. This is uh, on the East Coast. And this guy was very well known for his sort of ruthless but enormously successful business practices. And so he commented to Mark Twain, Before I die, I mean to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I will climb Mount Sinai and there read the Ten Commandments aloud at the top. Twain replied, I have a better idea. How about if you just stay here in Boston and keep them? And I read that and I thought, you know, what a perfect message, right? And I just would like to say at the outset, the point of reading God's word is to do it. And in fact, the reading of God's word is stunningly secondary in importance to the keeping of it. The reason we want to study the Word, the reason we look at the Word is because we assume it is a thing that is designed to order, shape, and transform our lives. But that doesn't come just because we believe it. It comes because we practice it. Um, That includes, obviously, all the Ten Commandments. But I would point out it also includes whatever the Bible reveals about God, that those are the things we worship Him for. Um, That as he follows us, as we follow him in the context of scripture, that's the place that we go. Those that we see in scripture, those are the ones we imitate. It just goes pervasively through the entire book. This isn't a question, just find a command and obey it. It's pattern your life after all that's been revealed about God. That's the call that really comes to us. Now, the interesting thing I've discovered is all the techniques we have for avoiding this. Um... So I, I teach theology. Uh, I've done this both in, in a church setting and also now at, at Biola. Uh, when I was doing it at church, we had a little kind of a theology thing that we'd do. And when it came time to do the doctrine of Scripture, I had a really simple acronym to remember kind of the four essential points. And these are pretty pervasive points, at least in, in evangelical systematic theology, regarding Scripture. So the acronym was ICAN, I-C-A-N. 
The I stands for inspiration. The C stands for the clarity of Scripture. In other words, that it speaks in a way that we can actually understand it, which is essential to the idea of obeying it here. Uh, The authority of Scripture. And then finally, the necessity and sufficiency of Scripture. That there's no other way that we can get access to God than through Scripture. Now, the interesting thing is I've been around for a while in evangelical circles. Um, I remember I came to Christ in the mid-70s. I went to seminary right in the early 80s. And the big debate at that time was about the doctrine of inerrancy of Scripture. And that emerges out of the notion of inspiration. Sometimes we do this backwards, actually, and try and construct the idea of inspiration out of the notion of inerrancy. We check the Bible, those are no mistakes, so it must be written by God. Biblically, it totally goes in the opposite direction. We're saying this is the word of the God, a God who never lies. It is a feature of God's character that we therefore infer the inerrancy and authority of Scripture from. Now, that's a little bit of a side note, but that was the place where the battle was being fought over inerrancy. And part of why that was so important is because once you find an error in Scripture, you begin to say, well, gee, maybe this is something I can doubt. Maybe this isn't really from God. And what ends up happening is you dodge the authority of Scripture because you've denied the inerrancy of Scripture. So that was part of why it was a bit of a raging debate. It wasn't just an academic question about are there any errors in Scripture. Fast forward 30 years, fast forward 40 years, uh, and I've, I've found an incredible change that's taken place. There really isn't that much of a debate about the inerrancy of Scripture anymore. It's not that people don't have different opinions about that fact, but that isn't, and there used to be a cottage industries of these books about the issue of inerrancy. It's remarkably uncommon to find a new book about the inerrancy of Scripture these days. And part of that is because of the shifting terrain of American culture. And we tend not to, we, we had sort of a modernist view 30 or 40 years ago, and it had a very clear notion of truth and a notion of falsehood. And that was a thing that you would find not only in the sciences, but in a lot of other places as well. And if it was true, it was true. If it was false, it was false. And you had the debate about which of the two it was. Well, nowadays we don't tend to talk that way. And we have a very soft notion of what something, what it means for something to be true, Um, And the other thing I've discovered is that the way we dodge the authority of Scripture nowadays is not by denying the doctrine of inerrancy, but rather by denying the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. In other words, we can't really know what it says and say, oh, of course that's what the Bible says. Those are the words that there. We aren't having that debate. But the point is, well, back then they didn't know what science knows today. Back then money was different. Marriage was different. Sexuality was different. Whatever it was. Back then... So it doesn't matter what the Bible says. It can say anything it wants. Everything the Bible says can be true. But the point is we have to apply it now. And now everything is wildly different. And the Bible can't speak a clear word to us anymore. And therefore we found that the Bible has lost its authority. Not because it's full of errors, but because it lacks clarity. Now, I deny that. I just don't believe that's true. I do believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, but I also believe in the clarity of Scripture. And what I really care about most of all is simply the authority of Scripture. Will it be decisive in our lives? And you could tell as you were reading uh, or hearing uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4 that this is a passage that's very much about that. Moses isn't just saying, hey, I gave you some commandments. I read them up on top of the mountain like that businessman from Boston wanted to do. He's saying, no, I want you to keep those commandments. 
And it's a call to the authority of Scripture and therefore a call to us to obey. Now, I'd like to just take the rest of the time I have now and just unpack a little bit about this notion of obedience. I want to talk basically just about two things, why we should obey and then how we can obey. It's relatively simple in that regard. Um, So let me talk first a little bit about this issue of why we obey. And I think in in this case... um, I mean, I, I can imagine being in a different time or a different culture today where this wasn't such a contested issue. But boy, in modern America, obedience has kind of become a dirty word. It's not a thing that we're proud of. It's, obedience is, is the feature of a drone, of a, you know, just the, the mindless sort of, you know, mediocre person who doesn't have anything better to do with life than just obey. Um, It's a little bit like eating your vegetables, something allegedly that's good for you, but you really doubt it on the inside. But you know your mom said it, so he has this vague notion it might be true. And in the Langer House, I don't know how this worked for you, but when I was growing up, my mom's way of managing the fact that we had protested about eating vegetables and other things we didn't like was she said, okay, you have to have what she called a no thank you serving. So despite the fact that you don't want it, you get a, quote, no thank you serving, which is basically three bitefuls. If you didn't like the peas, three peas wouldn't count. It had to be like an actual spoonful of the relevant item. This is a very painful and much contested line of thought, but mom always seemed to win. So we'd take these no helping servings and choke them down, and then we'd get on with the rest of the meal. Um, and the interesting thing was, you know, whatever my thoughts about the no thank you serving was, For my mom, I know what was going on in her brain is that, you know, you guys are seven years old and you're convinced that you will never, ever like broccoli in your entire life. But she said, I don't think that's actually true. So part of the point of a no thank you serving was to give you a taste for something that one day you would welcome a full serving of or perhaps even take seconds on. Back to the idea of obedience. I think most of us would like to take a no thank you helping of obedience. Just three little spoonfuls. I'll choke it down. And we're very resistant to just saying, I'll take seconds when it comes to obedience. I'll take a full dosage. But the funny thing is, most of the blessings of obedience don't actually come from a no thank you helping, right? It comes from setting yourself with a fundamental life disposition to say, I will be a person who obeys. So I just, and I may be wrong, you think of your life, but I'm just telling you the way I have the experience of American culture today, that's the way I feel we feel about obedience. Another thing I did on this was I got, I, I got my Google out, so to speak, Because I started thinking about movies, and I thought, when was the last time I watched a movie where the center of the plot line was that the hero obeyed a command from an authority that he didn't want to obey, and everything worked out wonderfully at the end? I thought, never? I I mean, and so I I Googled, uh, you know, movie themes, uh, movies on obedience uh, to authority. I found quite a collection. Every single one of them was negative. 
about obedience. So we had one on the famous Milgram experiment where the guy gives shocks to people and the authority figure says, keep shocking them, even though they start screaming. It's, uh, you know, they, they weren't actually getting shocked, but they were acting like they, they were. So he had one of that, this, this uh, guy who pretended to be a cop and he called this restaurant manager and he got him to strip search the people in his restaurant by asserting his authority over the person. We made a movie out of that. Uh, a Roman Catholic uh, seminary for young kids were called Perfect Obedience, and it was about how this uh, priest exploited perfect obedience in order to do sexual abuse on the kids. That is our, imag- our cultural imagination for obedience. How in the world can we begin to read Scripture aright when that's what comes to our mind regarding obedience? So let me just take a few minutes to do a, a little bit of reprogramming, so to speak, or at least reimagining, reimagining what obedience might look like. Let me begin by just, as long as I'm on the movie theme, uh, to try to give a little movie image of what obedience might look like that was somehow different than that. Um, and, and in order to do this, we have to leave the modern world and either take a trip to the Middle Ages or perhaps Middle Earth. So uh, I, I was thinking about a scene, it, it's in the books, in the movies of Lord of the Rings, but uh, Pippin, one of the hobbits, shows up in Gondor, the city of men, and unfortunately, the uh, son of the person who's in charge of the city of Gondor just gave his life to save the hobbit. Now, the hobbit is the size of half a human being, you know, so they call them halflings, literally. And it seemed like a really bad trade because the son was the big macho guy who's going to be the, the, you know, lord of all of Gondor, and we end up with a hobbit. And the, the, the king is the, the, they call him the, the steward of Gondor, is very upset about this. And, and Pippin, the hobbit, decides, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to swear fealty to this great Lord. I'm going to swear, in effect, filial obedience, complete subjection to this person. And here's the words that were used. This is really interesting. Here's what he said. Pippin says, Here do I swear fealty and service to Gondor and to the Lord and steward of the realm, to speak and to be silent, to do and to let be, to come and to go in need or in plenty, in peace or war, in living or dying, from this hour henceforth until my Lord release me or death take me or the world end. So say I, Peregrine, son of Paladin of the Shire of the Halflings. And what's really interesting is listen to Lord Denethor's response. He says, in this do I hear, Denethor, son of Ecthelion, Lord of Gondor, steward of the high king, and I will not forget it, nor fail to reward that which is given, fealty with love, valor with honor, and oath-breaking with vengeance. Oh. Okay, then. And... I just want to point out, this is a great example of the kinds of oaths of fealty that characterize the cultural imagination of the Western world, and actually for much of the world, for most of human history, where you make this sort of a lifelong pledge to a person to whom and that person makes a reciprocal pledge on the one hand to honor for your obedience, but on the other hand to punish you for your disobedience. And I'll just be forthcoming, that is way closer to the biblical context of our relationship with Christ 
than our modern world is. I love the words of Pippin. Imagine waking up in the morning and saying to Jesus, I will speak and be silent. I will do and let be. I will come and I will go in plenty or need in peace or in war and living or in dying from this hour henceforth until you, Lord, release me or death take me or the world end. Lord, I pledge this to you. Wow. And I'd just like to put that in your head as an alternative model of what obedience might look like. And I would like to acknowledge the fact that isn't necessarily entirely comfortable obedience either, right? I would just like to point out it's obedience with real meaning and significance. It's obedience with enough enough teeth to chew a piece of meat. Um, It's obedience that somehow really matters. And that's a picture I think is well worth having in our mind when we think about this. Now, with that in our mind, let me just think a little bit. Uh, you know, I'll run with this idea of back to my Noah thank you helping uh, of obedience. Why should we want like the full helping obedience? What is it that it does? So let me just give a little bit of perspective on that. Number one, there's sort of what you might call an upward benefit to obedience. And by that I mean relative to our relationship with God. So here's what happens with our relationship with God in light of our obedience. We see this wonderfully here in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Um, at the, towards the outset, well, let me just simply say the point of obedience in the context of Deuteronomy in general, in chapter 4 in particular, is obedience is the way that you preserve a covenant relationship with God. When you break obedience, when you disobey, you're violating that covenant, and then you have negative consequences. When you obey, you keep that covenant, and you have the rewards of preserving that relationship with God healthy and intact. So, for example, the, uh, the illustration is given early on in, in uh, verse 3 here of Deuteronomy chapter 4 regarding the Baal of, of Peor, um, and it's a reference to Numbers 25 where Balaam had kind of well, bottom line is the, the people of Israel end up uh, probably engaging in uh, ritual prostitution with uh, temple prostitutes for, for, the, um, for, for Baal worship. Um, and a plague basically comes down. A bunch of people die um, who were engaged in this activity. And some incredibly bold, just, you know, the elders have been called out to stop this and somebody just gets up and walks right through the camp and goes and does it again. Just a very high-handed sense of disobedience in this context. The result of that, obviously, is that there's a separation that results and this is addressed to those who didn't do that. And he says, you know that because you didn't do this, you are here now. And you get this clear sense of, oh my gosh, this is the thing that preserves that relationship. Similarly, in verse 7, a little further down, he says, what great nation is there that has that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. And again, that image is because we're in fellowship with God in covenant relationship. When we call on him, he answers us. And you see obedience is a way to keep the covenant relationship with God intact. Now, you may stop and think, well, that sounds great for the Old Testament. But hey, we have Jesus now. We have the new covenant. Everything's different in the New Testament. It isn't all about obedience. It's all about grace. That's why I didn't come to Obedience Fellowship Church this morning. I came to Grace Fellowship Church this morning. Who needs the obedience thing? I'll take a no thank you helping. So, just 
if that's where your mind is running. Let me just pick up another passage of Scripture. Jesus had a knack, actually, for drumming up these obnoxious parables that, generally speaking, centered around a master and a servant. And in all of those parables, it basically worked the same. Jesus was the master and you weren't. You were the servant. Here's one of my favorite, least favorites, however, to put this. Luke chapter 17, verse 7. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's coming from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterwards, you can eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Wow, let me read that again. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants and we've only done what was our duty. Could we just like move that back to the Old Testament? Just like do an extraction? I'm not going to take it out of the Bible. Not that, but just locate it somewhere safer. The problem is there's so many other parables that are just variations on the theme. And I don't have time to read. I have a collection here of six or eight of these that I, I, I won't take the time to read. Because you get the drift from this. That the idea of living in relationship with the God that we worship in both Old and New Testament at some profound level is reflected in the fact of our obedience. So the first reason why we obey is to preserve intact our covenant relationship with God. By the way, Paul does the same thing in the New Testament epistles um, that emphasize the the importance of obedience as well. Like I said, I'll leave that for your future reading. Um, Secondly, there's an inward benefit that comes from obedience. Um, in, In the sense that obedience actually ends up shaping your soul into God-pleasing fashion. It's just a benefit that comes to you. I was uh, sitting up here this morning watching Tom play the piano. Um, Occasionally, he looked down at the music. Of course, I leaned over to look at the music, and there were no notes there. They're just like words in some letter above the words. I have no idea how this works. And he's just sitting here playing up a storm like, hey, no big deal. And I'm like, how does that work? Well, there's a very simple answer to the question that none of us who don't play piano like. But the answer was practice. I can't imagine the number of scales that Tom has played in his life. I quit playing the clarinet in fifth grade. And the main reason I got this person, my, my sister, older sister, had played music and she was very good and she liked to do it, so my parents thought for some reason I would too. <laughs> um, so they get me this private, uh, you know, clarinet teacher. All he wanted me to do was play scales. I thought I was going to go insane. That would be a bad thing, so instead I quit. And guess what? I can't play the clarinet. can't play the piano. I can't play my iPhone, that's about it. Um, the way you become able to do things like this is by the, a thousand little obediences. A daily discipline of let me obey the law of the scales. 
let me do it off enough that my fingers know what to play next. I have a friend, I imagine Tom can do this too, but I still remember a guy I was speaking up at Forest Home, and he was a guy doing music. And I walked in one time, you know, before we were doing it, we had to figure out something, and he's playing the piano. And I said, well, let me ask you something about, you know, what we're doing, you know, when you're done. He says, oh, no problem, we can go ahead and talk now. So we have this whole conversation about what we're going to do at the end of the service, and he's like fully engaged in the conversation, and he's playing music with his fingers the whole time. It, I, I looked after it. It was not a player piano. It was really his fingers that were just doing this thing. And I'm going, how do you get this way? And the answer is a daily discipline of playing. And at some point, it reshapes who you are. It gets into your fingertips. You don't even need to invoke your brain. And this is one of the other benefits of sort of what you might call ritual obedience, that you just cultivate an inclination to do this. And we oftentimes worry about, like, the big things. We tell these stories. I was reading one about uh, Adoniram Judson, who was a missionary to Burma. And he got a call to this wonderful big church in Boston. His parents were all excited about this because he could stay home. And he says, no, I have this calling to God that I must obey. And he goes to Burma. And as a result of going to Burma, he had a really bad time in Burma at the outset. But he ends up finding some uh, key people. And they end up planting 50,000 churches that end up with 50,000 people before he's done. And we tell these wonderful big success stories to justify the impact of obedience. Now, I'm a fan of that. It's really cool. I would just like to point out most of us aren't going to go convert Burma. And, and let me give you a different version of the payoff of obedience, or even the vision for it. This is a prayer from a Muslim convert. Um, I think this is, you know, from 100 years ago sort of prayer, but interesting prayer. Oh God, I am Mustafa the tailor, and I work at the shop of Muhammad. The whole day long I sit and pull the needle and the thread through the cloth. Oh God, you are the needle, and I am the thread. I am attached to you, and I follow. When the thread tries to slip away from the needle, it becomes tangled and it must be cut so it can be put back in the right place. Oh God, help me follow you wherever you lead me. For I am really only Mustafa the tailor and I work in the shop of Muhammad on the great square. It's a wonderful vision of just ordinary obedience. Lord, you're the needle, I'm the thread. And my only prayer is, keep me attached to you. You can see actually in this passage a wonderful combination, that notion of obedience that preserves covenant relationship. Third benefit of obedience is our outward testimony. Um, as you noticed in this passage, uh, see a uh, statement that... that uh, that Moses makes here. See, I have taught you these statutes and rules. This is uh, Deuteronomy 4, verse 5 and 6. As the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the nations, who, when they hear these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. We keep these laws, and the watching world goes... What a God you must have, in effect. What wisdom you must have. Why do you have this wisdom? 
because you keep the words that he has given you. Because we put them into practice. The other interesting thing that happens in terms of the kind of outward benefit is we end up in a right relationship with the world around us. Um, not just in terms of our testimony to them, but we actually just live in a healthy way. So in Deuteronomy 4, again, he says, I'm giving you, listen to these statutes and rules I'm giving you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving you. It, it's the key to living in the land. And this is a theme throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and the image is literally when you disobey, when you worship idols or the other things that they're concerned about, all the ways it can go bad, the image is literally a very visceral one of the land will vomit you out. Uh, Deuteronomy 11 has a similar engine. It talks about, you know, when you live according to my laws, the rains will come in season and you will get a harvest and all these wonderful things will happen. And when you disobey, the famine comes and all these other terrible things, the land will in effect will reject you. So one of the keys to living successfully in the world in which we live is living obediently in the world in which we live. We live in a world that's designed by God. His commands are designed to keep you in fellowship with the world in which he has placed you. So these are a quick overview of the why, the benefits uh, of, of obedience. And let me conclude by just making a couple comments on keeping the law, how to obey. Um, obviously, at one level, it's like, just do it. I mean, Nike has answered the question, right? I mean, it just, there it is, just do it. So that's not actually a bad principle. Let me encourage you to keep that in mind. But it's interesting in this passage, an easy way to summarize Moses' strategy for that is very simple. It says, keep it all, keep it only, keep it always. That's what I want you to do. So keep it all. Uh, don't edit. I don't like this law. You know how we do this a lot today? I've, I've, it's kind of become a bit of a, I don't know, a, a meme where people will say something like, I could never worship a God who, fill in the blank, who would send people to hell um, who were born in countries where they didn't hear about Jesus. Um, here's an interesting one I bumped into. This is an Armenian Christian author writing about Calvinists. And he said, but therein lies a secret to why I've said that if it were revealed to me in a way that I could not doubt that God is as high, Calvin, high classical Calvinism claims he is, I would not worship him. Because in that case, there would really be no re reason to worship God instead of the devil. Wow, okay. I take it you're not a Calvinist. Um, now, I'm not really here to argue for Calvinism or Ar Arminianism, but wow, I look at that and say, if God was like the Calvinist God, I would refuse to worship him. Um, another one, Archbishop Desmond Tutu was talking about this, uh, about a different issue. He said he's publicly stated he would never worship a homophobic God and would rather go to hell than be in a homophobic heaven. He said, I would refuse to go to a homophobic heaven. I would say, sorry, I mean, I would much rather go to the other place. I would not worship a God who's homophobic. And that's how deeply I feel about this. And you notice this pattern of saying, if God is like fill in the blank, then I would never worship him. Now, let me just make an observation that usually what is happening here 
is that we are just looking at something that we see in Scripture and saying, I don't like that. The idea of predestination, or perhaps for the Calvinist, double predestination, that God would ordain that both people go to heaven and to hell actively. Um, Wow. If God did that, I wouldn't. Um, If God would send people to hell, I wouldn't. If God were to be homophobic, um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't worship. I refuse. And it's like, here's my worry. That you really think you can understand God and your affairs that well that you can judge him so wonderfully. And I would be the first to say, I, you know, if we're going to call God homophobic, I'm a little nervous about that. Um, just, you know, what do you mean by the term? But, of course, that's the whole conversation you have. That, that you have to unpack, what is it you really mean by that? Um, and if you're talking about... I, I wouldn't want to worship a nervous, antsy God who anytime anybody does something they don't like, he sends them to hell. It's like, okay, well, that's great, but that doesn't sound very much like God, right? So you end up having this conversation. But the idea that you simply say, I know the situation, and I know what it would like to God well enough that if God were to do this, I would never worship him. And I would just like to point out, you know, there are a lot of commands in Scripture, and there's a lot of teaching in Scripture. There's a lot of things revealed about God. But let me encourage you to at least invoke perhaps a card of mystery or humility before you invoke the card, I would not worship a God who. Um, Part of why Moses says, in effect, don't add anything, don't subtract anything to this law is the danger of subtraction is we just begin to reshape God into our image. And the point of obedience is to reshape us into his image. And when we begin this by saying, how can I explain away this passage of scripture so it's not awkward for me, um, we're headed to a really, really bad destination. The other thing, another thing that uh, Moses points out is, so not only do we avoid subtracting things. He says, don't add to the law. There's enough there. We have a knack for doing this. We keep amping it up. Um, depending upon where you grew up, you may have been forbidden to go to a swimming pool or the pool you may have been uh, told you couldn't go to is the pool hall because there's like, ooh, what happens in the pool hall? Or maybe you couldn't go to movies or maybe you couldn't drink this or maybe you had to do... We have all these bonus laws. And after a while, you get so freaked out, you're trying, to, you're trying to remember the law. And you see this in the Gospels, right, with the Pharisees who keep getting these more complex things. Here's how you have to wash, and here's when you do it, and here's how you do it. And all of a sudden, you know, they're so preoccupied with the commandments that they've completely forgotten the commander. The law has gotten in the way of God rather than the laws revealing God. How does that happen? By amping up the law by multiplying, increasing, stoking the law. And in fact, I would argue that an awful lot of these things, I would never worship God if, blah, 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 are actually the side effects of people having amped up their description of God beyond what is really said in Scripture. And so in a sense, they're rejecting a God that isn't in Scripture when they do this. But the reason they feel like they would want to say that is because people have amped up the law so much that God becomes distorted. I don't know if you've ever had, I I grew up in Colorado, did a lot of backpacking. And so you load up your backpack um, and you've got, you know, 40 pounds, 40, 50 pounds of stuff in it. And you want to load it in all kinds of different ways so that it is balanced. You don't want too much weight in the top. 
But on the other hand, you don't want all of it in the bottom because it'll pull you back this way and that way. The other thing that's absolutely terrible is when you get in, you never do this on purpose, but when you accidentally get too much weight on one side and you start walking like this and after about four miles, you know, you take off the backpack and you're still walking like this. In fact, you walk home like this because that extra weight has distorted the whole burden. And this is what tends to happen when we add to the law. Let God's word be God's word. Keep it, but keep it only. The, the hallmark of a problematic conscience in the New Testament is that it adds things to the law. The hyperactive conscience is the problematic one. The one that says you can't drink or you must drink or you can't do this on that day or things like that. In Romans 14, Paul talks about a pure person with a weaker, a weaker brother. The description is the one with an overactive conscience who keeps adding things and adding things to the law. So keep it all, keep it only, and keep it always. Don't quit. Don't flag. Don't fail. Um, Some of this is, you know, keeping it always just deals with literally time. The other real test, Keeping the law, a lot of times, is our feelings. Literally, we just don't want to. Um, or the other interesting one, this side note, Deuteronomy has a really interesting other feeling that's really problem. You know one of the other killers for obedience? Is success. And Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 8 says, boy, watch out when you get into the promised land and you build homes and, and dwell in them and your flocks increase and your, your uh, fields have good crops and you panel your homes all of a sudden, beware lest you forget the Lord your God and you stop keeping all the commandments that because of which he had blessed you to be there. The other thing is just plain feeling tired uh, and, and just not wanting to do it anymore. I had an interesting experience this morning. I, I got up you know, fairly early, I usually do if I'm preaching because I like to think through what I'm going to be talking about. And I walked out into the kitchen with the bathroom and I looked and I could see there, our garage door has kind of a gap. Uh, the door that goes to our garage, I mean, out of the house, has kind of a gap. And, and I noticed immediately I left the light on in the garage overnight. So I thought, well, let me just walk out and turn the light off. I walked out and turned the light out and I realized part of why I'd done that is I was working on staining this kind of tabletop thing I was going to make. And I'd left this little kind of pushing cart right square in the middle of the garage. The cars were in the driveway, but I'm going to be driving it back in when it comes. So I thought, let me just push this cart back against the wall. It was a good plan, okay? The problem was I had a full quart of dark wood stain on top of this rolling cart. Usually you get this in a, basically a pint or even a half a pint when you buy it. But the only thing they had was a quart. And I had set the lid on top of that, but I hadn't sealed it. And I pushed this thing back, and I had a piece of plastic on the top. It hit a corner, it twisted, and this whole thing fell off. As it tipped, the lid came off, and it landed square upside down. And I, it's 6.15 in the morning. I'm standing here in my bathroom, and there's a quart of this dark stain spreading across my garage floor like lava from a Hawaiian volcano. (laughs) And I'm like, oh. And I thought, I don't have time for this. I don't, 
I don't want to. I just don't want to clean it. I'm in my bathrobe. Isn't there like some hall pass for like just... And after about a minute or two, just staring, and it's oozing, you know, and starting to go around my feet, and I'm just like, Rick, it's time to just clean it up. (laughs) Just clean it up. And so I spent 20 minutes trying to get this stuff up off the floor. and, And it just, that sick feeling in the pit of the stomach is, do I need this right now? And you know what? Sometimes that happens with our obedience things. God gives us all these terrible commands. I don't know what he was thinking. (laughs) Things like bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another as I have forgiven you. Oh, jeez. This again? Ever had that feeling like I just don't need this now? And the Bible commands you these boring things. This isn't like the biggies, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. Like, ooh, yeah, those are the, hmm. I'm just supposed to bear with my brother or sister. I'm supposed to be patient and forgiving and kind. It's six in the morning, I don't think so. So keep it all, keep it only, Keep it always. Whether you feel like it or not, whether it makes a huge amount of sense to you or not, whether you've done it before and it didn't quite pay off or not, keep it all, keep it only, keep it always. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your word. It is an incredible privilege to have the words of God spoken to us. And Lord, we acknowledge them as coming from your mouth. We acknowledge your authority over your lives. And Lord, it's our simple prayer that like Mustafa the tailor, that you would just keep us attached to that word. Help us to hold tight as your needle pulls our thread through the fabric of our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name.